0: For more information about First Baptist Church, visit our website at fbcloosefull.org. First of all, I want to take an opportunity to welcome a lot of folks back. This has been great. I know a lot of folks have been texting in saying they've gotten their shots and they're ready to to ready to get back in and I just to see so many faces. It's just it's just wonderful to see everybody here today. And so I just wanted, to, just wanted to do that. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to flip over uh, to another passage and take a look at that. But I want us to start there. As we study worship, and we're kind of in the middle of our study of worship, what it means uh, for us as the family of God to worship. You know, it's not just something that we do on Sundays and Wednesdays. We worship every day. Everything we do is an act of worship. How we relate to one another is an act of worship. How we serve and love is an act of worship. How we live our daily lives is an act of worship to God. And as we study worship and what it means to worship God with everything, it occurred to me that we need to discuss some practical matters in the church. I mean, what good is it to learn everything that we can about how to love God with everything that we have, and and now to to worship Him with everything that we have, if we don't know how to put that in practice. I mean, this is more than just a theological discussion. This is more than just uh, an academic exercise we're doing. We are learning how to worship so we can do it, so that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. Paul was talking about this very thing in his letter to the Roman church in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, when he says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, he had spent the first 11 chapters of this letter talking to the church about the gospel, talking to them about what that means, telling them about the gospel that Jesus gave him and gives us all if we we come to believe. And then he tells them in chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul is saying this gospel that we've been given, we have got to proclaim boldly. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of it. And he's telling us the same thing. We should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should not shy back from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talked about how everybody is guilty before God. In Romans 3.10, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Then he talked about how we are justified by our faith in Christ, and because of that justification, because of that legal position that we have before God where we are declared not guilty by the blood of Jesus Christ, because of that, we are dead to sin, and we're alive to God. We're delivered from our bondage to sin, we're delivered from our bondage to the flesh, and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are given victory. And we say with Paul in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? God has already won the war. God has already assured victory. And if God is for us, then does it really matter who is against us? Because God is victorious and he takes us with him. I mean, is there any better reason to worship? Can you come up with any better reason and to worship properly, to worship with our all, to worship with everything that we have? But Paul's not done. Then he gets to Romans 12, and he says, therefore, really important, crucial word, therefore, why is everything in the the first 11 chapters important? Paul says, well, I'm getting ready to tell you. That's why he says, therefore. So look at the first two verses of chapter 12 again. All of this I've told you about the gospel, he says, is important. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. We are to present ourselves to God as an act of worship. That's why everything we do is worship. Because when we present ourselves to God, we are giving Him everything. And that is our spiritual act or service of worship. And then he tells us in verse 2, not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we learn, as we study, as we grow closer to God, we are transformed. We are made new. We're made new. So that what we may prove what the will of God is those things that are good and acceptable and perfect. Everything we are is an act of worship to God. Just just think about that for a minute. Which is why church is not what we do here. We are the church. Because everywhere we go, everything we do everyone we encounter and the way we treat those folks is an act of worship so it ought, to, it ought to really inform every relationship that we have everything that that we do and i think that presents itself in some pretty practical ways i mean let's take a look at first thessalonians turn to chapter 5 of first thessalonians and uh look beginning in verse 12 and we're going to continue through verse 22 but this is this 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 continues this idea of the practical application of learning how to worship. Paul writes here, but we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek what is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, verse 16 says. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not utterly reject prophecies, but examine everything. Hold firmly to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil, it's here that Paul gives the church some practical instruction to the church. It's this was a young church, this church at Thessalonica. It was a young church, and it needed some encouragement as it grew in spiritual maturity. But I'm going to tell you something: churches, young or old, always need encouragement in growing in spiritual maturity. I mean, that, that, that's our function, right? We're to grow. We're not to stay static. We don't just get saved and occupy a pew. We're to grow. We're to learn. We're to, to, to learn how to obey and to trust and to love one another out of the abundance of the love God has for us. These are all the things that we're supposed to do. All of Paul's letters, if you take a look at all of his letters, give or take, it's half theology, half learning. He teaches, and then he says, now that you know this, now that you have this learning, this is what you do with it. It's half action, half doing. So, what does he tell us? What does he tell us? Well, the first thing he tells us to do is to treat each other well. Treat each other well. Look at verses 12 through 15 again. But we ask you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek what is good for one another and for all people. So we're to treat each other well, treat each other well. What does that mean? That means we build one another up. Part of the, the, the thing that we do, part of the thing that, that makes uh, being a part of the family of faith so awesome, frankly, is that we love one another. And because we love one another, we build one another up. I think we've seen that over the last year as we have continued to keep up with one another as we've not been able to worship together in person. We've been able to, you know, we, we have, we've had to concentrate more on reaching out. We are to build one another up. You know, you know a brother or sister that is suffering? That is hurting? Reach out. Reach out. Encourage. Be an encourager. Paul had a great encourager in Barnabas, and, and I think we're all in some form or fashion encouraged to be, Bar- to be a Barnabas. We're to be encouragers for one another. We're to build one another. We're to respect leaders. God has placed people in positions of, of responsibility in the church for a purpose we have all been given stewardship of this thing we call the church but God has placed some people in positions of responsibility and we're to be encouragers for them the Bible says those folks are going to be held to a different standard, right? that God is going to hold teachers leaders to a higher standard because God has called them to, to work among his people not to lead them astray but to help them grow and so paul says to respect the leaders he talks about living in peace we're to live in peace with one another why because the church is called to be a people that are in harmony we are a people that are united with one another with one focus and one purpose and that is to bring people to the cross so that they can be transformed forever that is our ministry that is our goal we're a fighting force to do that to go into the world and make that difference for the gospel armed with the power of the gospel so we're to live in peace with one another we're to admonish the unruly what does that mean? that means deal with conflict the church cannot function as it should if it is in conflict so Paul tells this church as a practical matter Y'all, we have, you've got to get along with each other. Live in unity. Live in harmony. And those that would seek to sow seeds of discord in the church should be dealt with. That's dealt with, Deal admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. How many folks do you know that just are at their end? They're tired. They feel like they've prayed all they can. They don't feel like God's answering their prayers, and we've talked on Sunday nights about waiting, what that means, how that grows us, but we can get dejected, can't we? We can get dejected. What does Paul tell this church as a practical matter? If you're going to be the church that God has called you to be, you should do all these things. You should also encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those folks that are, that, that are down and that are low and that, that just need to be, to be picked up. And lifted up and encouraged. Do that. Encourage the fainthearted. He also says to help the weak. Y'all, every one of us are given gifts. All of us are given our own individual assignments in the kingdom of God based on the gifts that God has given us. One of those things that all of us can do is help those who are less fortunate, weaker than we are. If people can't come to the church and expect love and expect uh, uh, affirmation and expect help, then where can they go? If we are going to show the life of Christ in us, Christ was a helper. He helped people that he came in contact with. He lifted them up. As followers of Christ, trying to grow in the image of Christ, we've got to be helpers. Boy, here's one. Be patient. He tells the church to be patient. Boy, that is something that that I know I deal with daily. I know it's something that a lot of y'all deal with too and that that we live in a world that wants everything like Mr. Giles said at Sunday school this morning. We live in a world that wants everything now. Absolute, instantaneous gratification. And sometimes God calls us to patience he calls us to wait for a moment while he moves everything into place for us he calls us just to be still and know that he is God and that's tough I know that's that's one of the areas that I'm that I I deal with is being patient because I'll I'll want to charge ahead and i want God to catch up with me And that's never the way it's supposed to be. You see, God leads from the front. And God takes us where he wants us to go. And so sometimes we've got to subordinate or push down our agenda, our thoughts, our timetable for the perfect timetable of a perfect God. So he calls us and he calls this church to be patient. As God works out His plan, be patient. How about this one? The last thing He says to the church. He says, resist revenge. Resist revenge. How many of us have have eaten up valuable time in our lives that we will never get back again trying to figure out how to exact some kind of revenge on someone who has done something to hurt us or, or made us... Uh, feel less than, than worthy or, or hurt our feelings or, or things like that. He tells this church if you're going to do all these other things if you're going to build each other up if you're going to respect uh, those in authority if you're going to live in peace if you're going to admonish the unruly or encourage the faint hearted help the weak, be patient what do you have to do? You've got to resist revenge. Because revenge will impact the desire to exact some type of judgment on somebody is going to interfere with every other one of those things that he has called the church to do. So he says we've got to sometimes set aside what would be our natural inclination. I mean, I'm telling you, somebody kicks you, you want to kick them back. Somebody hurts you, you want to hurt them back. But I I would ask you, if 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 one of our missions is to grow in the likeness of Christ, and that is what spiritual maturity means, if we're going to grow in the likeness of Christ, how many times did Christ exact that kind of judgment? Never. Never. Because that would have impacted every aspect of his mission, and he was perfect. Doesn't mean we don't think about it. Doesn't mean we sometimes don't try to do it. But what it means is we strive not to. We strive to do these things. And sometimes that means praying for somebody, like the Bible tells us, praying for somebody who hurts us, lifting them up. It's hard to hate somebody you're praying for, isn't it? And all of these things that He has told the church to do in those first. Uh, three or four verses, all the things that he's told the church to do has one goal, one purpose, one mission in mind, and that is to impact the world with the gospel. That is to bring people to the cross so that they will understand that there is this barrier between them and God that sin has created, and that Jesus came to die on the cross at Calvary to relieve that burden If you would simply believe and confess, if you would lay everything at the feet of Christ and say, I understand now that that, that sin has hampered my ability to enjoy everything that God has for me, and I'm going to ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to heal me, to redeem me, to buy me back, I'm going to do that because that's where God wants me to be. That's the position He wants me to have so that He can change me. We have got to get more intentional about reaching those around us with the gospel. I mean, if the church doesn't leave this and go into a world that is lost and hurting and dying and bring them the joy that the gospel brings along with, along with the promise that God makes to those who will accept him, if we don't do that, then, then what do we do? Look, we got to reach out to millennials. These people are folks that are focused on asking the question what is the church doing? Now, we're not supposed to be about works over faith, but our faith ought to drive our works. And would you all agree with that? Our faith ought to drive our works. We've got groups of young people that are looking at the church and they're going, what difference do we make? Are we doing these things, building one another up when they look in and see us? Are we respecting folks and living in peace, or are we fighting among each other? Are we encouraging folks? Are we doing those things? Are we studying to to show ourselves approved are we are we burying ourselves in the word of god so that it can transform us from the inside out not the outside in are are we doing those things what about the folks that don't look like us are we reaching out to people based solely on the fact that everyone we come in contact with is a person of worth and value that's been created in the image of god And if they don't have the gospel, they need to have it. Are we are we are we doing that? How about kids? The next generation. You know, we always say the future of the church, but they are the church, right? We're the church. They're a part of us. Are we are we reaching out? Are we, are we reaching out to fathers? Every single study that you read about families who come to Jesus Christ there is an exponential growth totally related to the father the head of the household if you save the father the family there's an there's an exponential percentage that will say if you save the father you save the family are we reaching out to dads Are we giving dads a reason to understand that what we're doing here is important? And it's not important because we're simply spinning our wheels on Sunday. What's important here is we're learning how to be the children God has called us to be so that we can go into our families and teach them the same thing. Are we doing that? Are there no needy families around us? What are we doing as the church to reach those around us who need? Here's one. Participating in our republic. Voting. You ever thought about voting as an act of worship? I mean, it's an exercise of the freedom that we have been given by a holy and righteous God. Is it not? Now, I'm not talking politics. I'm talking being involved. Too many times Christians sit on the sidelines and they say, well, I'm not getting involved in that. That's nasty and it's dirty and it's, and it's politics and, and, and it is. But a lot of times when, the, when Christians sit on the sidelines, they abdicate their responsibility, the responsibility that God has placed on us by blessing us with Freedom to exercise that freedom, to do that, to reach the community. And if we're going to do that, why don't we start, if we're going to reach a community, why don't we start by establishing ourselves as conscientious citizens? People who understand that this world is not our home, but while we are here, God has called us to make an impact. He's called us to make a difference, to let the world see Christians involved in, in working in the community. He's called us to treat each other well he's also called us to worship well look at verses 16 through 22 of first Thessalonians chapter 5 rejoice always pray without ceasing in everything give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus what's the will of God? for us to rejoice for us to give thanks for us to to pray without ceasing. He says in verse 19, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not utterly reject prophecies, but examine everything. Hold firmly to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. He teaches us, the church, how to worship well. Our corporate worship says a great deal about our relationship with God. Have y'all ever stopped to consider that? Our corporate worship, what we do here, says a great deal about our relationship with God. So how does our relationship with God look? Well, Paul tells us we need to live and worship in joy. We need to go out of our way to live in joy. It seems like sometimes we go out of our way to find the opposite of that. But Paul tells us to go out of our way to live and to worship in joy. Let others see us experiencing joy why because that's the joy we're supposed to share with a world that's lost people who are searching they need to be able to look at the church us the church and see some type of 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 indescribable inexpressible joy in our lives you know i've been a baptist my whole life and sometimes we are known more for the things that we're against than the things that we're for But God tells us to experience the joy that only He can provide and to share that with a with, with world that, that needs to hear it. Look, preachers are the worst. We take the best news, not just the good news, we take the best news and then we make it boring we make it boring. Y'all, that's a sin. To take the good news of Jesus Christ, the best news we could ever have, and make it boring. I mean, how can we reach a lost world with the gospel if we can't even make it exciting for ourselves, the believers? What we study here, what we study at home, what, what, what the, the men are doing in their Bible studies and the women are doing in their Bible studies, that is exciting stuff. This is a message from a holy, righteous, living God who loves us, who wants us to experience the best out of everything. He wants us to have that, and he gives us his word, and we turn it into a drudgery. Man, this is exciting stuff. He wants us to be excited about it too. We need to understand that our relationship with each other is critical to corporate worship. In this passage, Paul uses the word brethren, five times. What does that mean? Us. We are the brethren. And when he talks to the brethren, he's talking to all of us. And how we live with one another and relate to one another and the things that we do for one another and with one another and through one another to, to expand the, the, the gospel into areas that may not have, uh, we may not have ever envisioned taking the gospel ourselves. When we do that, we are the brethren. And we do that best when we do that together. We do it best when we do it together. So we should live and work and worship in joy. We should understand that our relationship with each other is critical to what we do here in corporate worship. We also should have a regular prayer life. The church should be a praying church. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we blow past that little phrase, in my name, don't we? We We get out of this, if you ask me anything, I will do it. Well, that's not the way it operates. I think all of us know that. the caveat to this is asking in his name, according to God's character according to God's will. And how do we develop a knowledge of the character and will of God? We study Him. We place ourselves before Him. We pray to Him. We listen when He responds. We grow in righteousness. We grow in in knowledge. Christ shares Himself with us. God shares who He is with us. The Holy Spirit, who lives in each one of us, teaches us about the triune God. He teaches us about those things and so if we're sincerely following God if we're sincerely seeking to do his will then our requests of him are going to be in line with what he wants and he will grant them we got to get on God's page not ask God to get on our page right God's the only one that's got the page we don't find where we're working and ask God to join us. We find where God is already moving things and, and, and we get in there with Him and we labor in that vineyard. So if we, as we learn who God is and as we learn who Jesus is to us and as we learn the work of the Holy Spirit, we will learn those things. God will impress upon our hearts those things that we need to be in prayer about. And when we ask God for those things, God is more than happy to grant those things because we are finally together. That's what we should do. The idea of prayer in any church is constantly recurring. It is coming up over and over and over again in Paul's letters, particularly 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 5, verse 23. What is is Paul talking about? Why is he focusing on this so much? Because prayer drives the church. Prayer enables us to access the very power of God. Prayer is the way that God communicates with us most directly. He talks to us in his word, and and the Holy Spirit leads and guides us, but he talks to us when we talk to him. We don't just throw out a bunch of stuff and ask God to to deal with it with it. We listen when he talks to us. Prayer is the way we do that. So Paul's telling this early this, this very young early church, this is important. You've got to communicate with God. And friends, that has not changed in the 2000 years since this was written. This has not changed. We have got to communicate with God, and we do that most effectively in prayer. We've got to be a praying church. Also, we've got to be a church that is thankful for everything. 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 What does that mean? That means to be thankful for every kind of situation. You're talking about a hard command. A hard command to follow. When we're going through something that, is, that is, it seems to be uh, just sapping us, God tells us in his word to be thankful to him. Why? Because being thankful is a choice. Being joyful is a choice. It is intentional. It doesn't, it doesn't blow based on the, the winds of how we may feel. Happiness will do that. Some days we're happy and some days we're not. But sometime, but, but what, what Paul is saying, and I think what God has got for us through this, this study, is that joy is not Fleeting. Thankfulness isn't fleeting. There's a great little story about Matthew Henry who wrote one of, the, one of the preeminent commentaries on the Bible, Matthew Henry's commentary. A man once stole Matthew Henry's wallet. And you know, I always think about these things. They tell, these pastors tell these stories, and I'm going, you know what? How can that possibly be? You know, this has got to be just a great story that some pastor said somewhere, and it just became the, the truth. But it's one of those great church stories that's got a great lesson. And Matthew Henry shared it. He said, and when he reflected back on that that incident where someone stole his wallet, he said this, he said, number one, I am thankful that he never robbed me before. He said, number two, I am thankful that although he took my wallet, he didn't take my life. He said, number three, although he took all that I had, it wasn't much. And he said, I'm glad that it was I who was robbed, not I who did the robbing. Matthew Henry knew how to make lemonade out of lemons. He knew how to be grateful despite having a bad experience. That is how people mature in Christ react in tough times. They learn how to be grateful for even the small blessings. God will give us dozens of small blessings every day. Sometimes they just pass right by us. But to be thankful for the small blessings, that's how we can tell that we're we're growing. Finally, we should give ourselves best. I was always told never to say finally because you start hearing rustle. We should give our best to practical matters. If Paul is going to carve out this much time and space to talk to the church about matters that are practically important to to the survival, the health, the vitality of the church, we should give our best to that. We should not quench the Spirit. We should examine everything carefully. Test everything, Right? We don't just believe something because somebody says it. We go back and look at it. We look at the Scripture. We ask God to enlighten us, to tell us these things so so, so that we don't get led down a path that leads us away from the Word of God even though they're reading the Word of God. We should examine everything. Listen, we have an awesome responsibility as Christians. An awesome responsibility. It is a responsibility that's God-given. God has placed us here for this time in this moment to do something for the kingdom of God. He gave it to us. It's God-blessed because what God gives us to do, God's going to bless. If God shares an idea with us to do, God's going to bless that idea because it's God's. It's God-blessed. Our responsibility is also to rightly divide the Word of God. What does that mean? That means we study. We study the Word of God. He's given it to us. He teaches us in it. And we should study it. We're to preach the gospel. Day in and day out, we should preach the gospel. That's not just for me on Sunday morning. Every one of us is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should be preachers of that gospel. So look for opportunities to do that. We should reach the lost. We should reach the lost. We should be constantly looking for opportunities to share what God has given to us with somebody else, we should reach the lost and we should love each other. Love each other. How are we going to be effective when we are united in love and we worship with everything we have? You say, Well, if you do that, if you worship everything you have, it's kind of going to be exhausting. That's not been my experience. I think when you worship God with everything you have and you give everything you have to what God wants you to do, I think God gives you an energy that you would not have otherwise. I just believe that. I felt it. I've experienced it. I know you have too. You give yourself in something that is a, 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 that is a worthwhile, worthy effort for the kingdom. And God blesses you with additional energy to do the work He's called you to do. I just believe that. Try Him on it. Give yourself. You know, I, I saw a verse that I just want to share. For those of you who may, be, who may not have that relationship with Jesus right now, but you've been, str- you've been struggling with it, what kind of God this is. And I, I was just flipping through the Bible this morning, and I, just, I came across this. Jesus talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin. I'm just going to read verse 7 and verse 10. It says, I tell you that in the same way, talking about... This shepherd who goes after, who leaves the ninety-nine to go look for one, he says, "I tell you that in this way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." And in verse ten, when he talks about the woman who lost the coin and she cleaned all, she turned on the lights and she cleaned all night long until she could find that coin, and then she went to her friends and says, "I found this coin. Please rejoice with me." He says in verse ten, "In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents." You know why? Because we're each one individuals. God doesn't say, well, I've saved 75%. That's a pretty good number. I've saved 80%. God wants to save you because you are important to Him. He made you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. You, me, each one of us individually are important to him. Let him have his way in your heart today. Father, I just thank you so much for loving us. Lord, I thank you for your word, how it enriches our lives, how it instructs us, invites us. God, sometimes it it convicts us and and brings us back into right relationship with you. God, I thank you for the way you communicate with us through your word, through prayer, through worship. God, we want to be people who worship you the way you command that we do in spirit and in truth with everything that we have, that we don't go to some place to worship. Our lives are a living, breathing act of worship. God, I pray that you are dealing with somebody about giving their life to you, a new life in worship. God, that you're going to relieve them of of the, the burden of the sin that they carry because you have already taken that sin to the cross. Thank you for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name.